this is <clears throat> this is going to be part one of my coverage of Catholicism. There's so much to examine. There's so much to look at in all of this that uh, that I cannot be covered in one session. So there'll be at least two that will be in this. But I'm going to release this just for the first hour. I'm going to go from there. Now, I am not pretending in any way to be exhaustive in any of this. I wasn't exhaustive in Judaism. I'm not going to be exhaustive in Catholicism, uh, even though I'm going to be breaking into at least two parts. There's just that much there. Um, I There are people that are much better at giving it a much more thorough examination than myself, and uh, and I, I most certainly am not going to try and step on those toes or to make any kind of claims or attempts to be better at it than they are. Uh, I am not getting nearly deep enough in this in order for it to be considered something of a serious discussion, but I do want to cover some of the basics and my, my take on them. And in this first hour, we'll get through uh, basically to the point of the baptism, uh, and then we'll pick up from there into the actual order itself and uh, things like the Virgin Mary and Rosary and so forth. That will be picked up in the second part um, that will be released on another day. But I wanted to get us through the basic tenets uh, and through the basic structures, and then we'll go from there. Okay, <clears throat> moment of Catholic clarity. Apparently, it all boils down to four tenets that can determine whether you're really considered a Christian or part of a Christian organization. First, you have to believe that God is solely responsible for the creation of everything. Second, that he sent his son Jesus to save humanity from their sins. Third, that the Holy Spirit is all around us. And fourth, that Christ will eventually return to restore or save humanity. If you've got those four elements, apparently, according to the Catholics, that's really all you need in a nutshell to be a Christian. Um, they believe that in order for you to pursue God, God has to gift you the gift of faith. And then you have to earn redemption um, hereafter. Okay. Now, on top of that is what that means is that Faith is not something that is just freely handed out. You can't force it on someone unless it's infant baptism. And then, yeah, you can give them the gift of faith even though they're unaware that they're receiving it. Now, one of the things that's always bothered me about Catholicism is the whole idea of confirmation. Um, the Catholics believe that in order for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be conferred upon a human being, they have to go through the sacrament of confirmation. And that this confirmation is the completion of the church's initiation. Um, that's very cultish. Okay? You're not initiated into any of this. Uh, unless you're Catholic. Now, it is ironic that, uh, that you know, the, the Christian church does the same thing um, today in its denominations. It's, it's ironic how you could take one verse, you can take John 3.16, which is very simple, it's pretty clear, uh, but you can take that and somehow turn it into a month-long program so that somebody can be accepted into a church. And so I, I'm not hitting Catholicism in anything in this regard that I'm not hitting the church 
as a whole in today. I think they're both ridiculous. One scripture tells you what's necessary, okay? You don't have to go through a long thing, okay? You don't have to go through a series of rituals, and you certainly don't need to go through an initiation into a program in order for the Holy Spirit to be released so that you can receive your gifts. Um, this is not a video game or a stamp book where you collect all the stickers and you end up with the prize at the end. It doesn't work that way. Okay? But Catholicism is much larger in regards to this process than I find even in the Christian denominations that, that do it in order for their church membership to be considered legit. Uh, and it is something that bothers me a great deal. It's not exclusive to Catholicism, though, and I will admit that here. Now, another rather interesting Catholic piece of history is the whole concepts of St. Patrick and the, the Shamrock. And, uh, you know, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible at all, but the concept came around from Tertullian um, around the, the 200s, around the... the the 3rd century, and um, we've understood it, and we use it quite often to explain the Godhead, and I'm even using the term Godhead as a reference to that, um, but, but with St. Patrick, okay, in Ireland, they adopted the shamrock, because traditionally it's a three-leaf uh, plant. And they, they adopted that as an example of how the Trinity works. And it's not necessarily a bad concept as far as explaining it to a small child that, hey, it's got three leaves, but it's one plant, just like God has three parts, but is one God. And I get that. But instead, what happens is, once again, like happens in all religions and all cults and things of that nature, the Catholic tradition in Ireland adopts the image of the shamrock and makes it something sacred or holy. And over the centuries, the demonic side, okay, the satanic side goes in and says, well, hey, the four-leaf, okay, is even more sacred, uh, which is actually really just a perversion of and a blasphemy toward the Trinity. But it's taken that nature worship concept that was put into the shamrock in the first place, by the Catholics and then twisting it and turning it into something that everybody looks at and, and we're told through the centuries now that it's lucky. Okay? Which is, of course, a game of chance, which is a game of charming, which takes you into that other realm. So, the more items that Catholicism gathers as relics or as symbols, the more there is to distort that over time and to create um, the counter-argument for it and the blasphemous side of it. The shame of it is, is that we see throughout the traditions in the church over the centuries that the church did the same thing. It took pagan rituals and twisted them into something that was supposed to be Christian. It's not something you toy with. Okay, you don't take something demonic and say, hey, how can we turn it into something godly? 
Uh, no, here's what you do. You take something demonic and you cast it away and you run away from it as fast and as far as you can. You don't adopt it. You don't hug into it. You don't build your buildings based off of it. You don't uh, adorn your ritual system with it. Uh, and yet that's all there, very prevalent in the Catholic Church, more so than in the Protestant Church, although it's present in both. Now, there's also another concept here about the, the fact that the Catholics have their own version of the Bible. Um, they don't have your traditional 66 books that, that are made up of the Old and New Testament that the Christian Church has as a whole, uh, or the 39 books that would be considered uh, the Old Testament on its own. They instead have 46 books in their Old Testament. They include four additional histories, two wisdom books, or a revamping then of some additional things, and an additional prophet. Um, these are all books that fall under the, uh, the umbrella of Apocrypha. And they are books that are not accepted either by Judaism or by Christianity as a whole. But the Catholics have thrown them back in um, as recently as the 1500s. Uh, some of them staying in through, you know, several hundred years before that, I mean, back in the 300s. But by the 1500s, the Catholic Church said, yeah, these seven books for certain need to be a part of our Bible. So a Catholic Bible really is a different Bible with an additional prophet, additional wisdom books, additional history books, things of that nature. Um, all added by Rome. They're all Roman or Romanized writings. Uh, some of them are, are writings that actually were post-first century A.D. writings and were accepted in the 300s. And, uh, and so, but they were accepted into the Old Testament. Okay? So it's just interesting. And again, like I said, even, even the Jewish community excised these books and said, no, they're not a part of our holy canon. Um, Christianity as a whole said, no, they're not a part of our canon, but Catholicism brought them back in. Okay, And that's been brought in because the Pope holds a special position. Uh, something I'll go into deeper at another point, but there is this concept that whatever the Pope says from his chair including things of canon, becomes canon. And so all it takes is a pope saying, yes, I think that book should be accepted. I like that. I like the way that it reads, or I like the way that it feels, or I like what it says. So it is now holy. Very dangerous concept. Okay? Uh, it's not really much different than the way a pope is elected into their position. Okay, a secret initiation takes place, a secret council occurs uh, in which the bishops um, meet and vote secretly. Okay, and uh, when it is over, they burn those votes, so nobody knows how they voted. And depending on whether it's white smoke or black smoke, will determine whether they have uh, declared a new pope or they are not yet above you know a two-thirds majority or a 50 plus one majority or whatever that it ends up being at 
uh, and then they are, you know, this new pope is, uh, or you know, adorned in the papal garment and cast out into the public and has to speak their first words, and suddenly they are considered the earthly representation of Christ to a billion or more people. And if they're sitting in their chair, whatever they say from that chair is doctrine, it's scripture, it's canon, it's law, and it's seen as infallible if it comes from the chair. More on that later. Now, another thing that's very prevalent uh, in the 21st century, but has been around for many centuries, is this Catholic concept that there is a healthy and, uh, and respectful relationship between Catholicism and all religions around the world. This idea that we can work uh, in a combined effort with all religions uh, for the greater good of humanity, which sounds great, and for me to say it the way that I'm saying it, I'm sure there were some of you going, well, that, why would you disagree with that? That sounds good. It sounds great to work with other people for the, the betterment of humanity as a whole, but what happens is the respect level is so high that what happens is what we have in the last couple of popes where they come in, and again, it's happened previously over the centuries as well, but particularly in the last couple of popes, this concept of we not only can work with them, but we accept them as being just as divine and just as equal and just as much a path to God as Catholicism is. Okay, so Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Muslims, all of these faiths can come in and be seen as equally benefiting humanity, and so therefore they should be equally respected as religions that are legitimate around the world. And they really do believe in that concept that all roads lead to the same God. No. Just simply no. You know within your gut that that's not right. You know that that's not real. You know that you cannot look at all the religions of the world and the way that they worship and the things they do in their rituals and the concepts that they have and look at all of them and say, all of these beliefs, all of these systems are right. Okay, If your brain can really tell you that goat sacrifices or human rituals uh, of sacrifice or uh, spiritual prostitution and bloodletting and things of that nature that happen around the world or this concept of leaving your body the chakra and all of this mysticism that happens out there that all of that is all a hundred percent a, a way to get to God as Christianity is or Judaism is and so forth they don't all lead to the same place not as far as they don't all lead to the God they do all lead to a religion and that's one of the traps that will eventually happen 
that all of these religions will look at each other and say, and I think they'll be led by a figure like the papacy that says, we can all just get along. Put all that together, and what you end up with is a council. And the council says, hey, we all pretty much come down to these agreeable terms. Like I said before, those four tenets that make you Christian. Well, what if there are three or four tenets that the world religions can come together and agree that they all represent in their different ways? And then if they can do that, what they can do is turn around and say, well, then let's get under the umbrella of those three or four tenets. And let's acknowledge that we are all going to the same direction. We're all the same thing. And the next thing you know, you have an international recognition of one religion. It's really that simple. And it's, we're closer and closer to it now. And you hear, we've heard this for centuries, obviously. People have said, we're closer now than we ever have been. Well, of course, that's true. But all you have to do is see from what happens inside the Vatican City, this autonomous zone of, of protection that happens within the Vatican, and their particular desire to be harmonious with all these different faiths, shows how easy it is to, to happen. And they don't even acknowledge that within Catholicism they're, they're that different. They consider, I mean, they can't even agree on the same number of canoned books in their scripture. But all of that will have to go away. Okay? All of that will have to disappear. And the way Catholicism works is it'll be an easy thing to do. Now, I know I took a little bit of a side trip there, but it does all fall under the way Catholicism brands itself as we are accepting and are harmonious with all faiths, with all religions in the world. And they see that as one of their recruiting or, or sponsoring elements into Catholicism. Hey, you know, if you're from some other faith somewhere, okay, if you believe something really kind of different, you know what, come on, because we accept all of that too. Where's the salt? Where's the light in that? Okay, we are to testify as witnesses of the Lord against our brothers when they are stumbling. Catholicism, by its recruiting nature, implies, no, you, we are all really harmoniously with each other. We're really all the same. And they have done that over the centuries, and as a result, it was very easy for Rome to take over very early on. I mean, we hadn't even completed the first century before Rome was taking over the process. Uh, and then you get to Constantine, and there's this huge tradition within Catholicism that Constantine, the first religious Christian emperor, okay, let that soak in. The first Christian emperor. How are you an emperor and you follow the foundations of Christianity, of Christ? 
Th those are in opposition to each other right there. But no, all Constantine did was said, this is a huge group. We can pull this in. We can gather this huge group of people and we can, we can control the masses with this. So we'll just accept it in. We'll get rid of all these other things that are out there. And we can make this work. We can run with this. Constantine was not Christian. Constantine was an opportunist. He was a Roman opportunist who saw an opportunity to take an extremely fast and large-growing religious faith and turn it into something that was opportunistic, that was secular, and as a result, we ended up with what we currently have, not just in the Catholic Church, but in the Church in general. And uh, we even use the concept of something being Romanized or romantic. Okay, we romance this concept. We've, you know, we've, that is, we've been trained to believe that that's a good thing. Okay, we, we took the concepts of a society that could not succeed on its own, that was losing its power, and it adopted a religion in order to maintain its power. Rome never lost its empire. It remarketed it into a religion, which then became the actual governing system. Now over most of the world. <laughs> the Roman Empire didn't really fall, it just transformed. And it's important to understand that you you're living in a government run empire that hides under the guise of a religion. One of the areas of concern with Catholicism has always been the aspect of someone being able to be saved after death. And uh, it, it goes back to the concepts of baptism, but it's a twisted format. According to the Catholic doctrine, baptism is something that is required. It's a first step that's a requirement in the initiation, okay, the sacrament of initiation. And, uh, and yet they also say that somebody who never came to know of Jesus also has already been saved because Jesus came to save everyone. And so therefore their soul can be baptized or initiated after death uh, because they've already been covered. Now, the irony in this is that <laughs> Jesus says that I am the way, right? That I am the only way for you to come to salvation. That means you have to commit on your part. You have to dedicate yourself to Jesus. Um, not an initiation. Uh, a dead body can't be sprinkled or a dead body cannot be prayed over and uh, and that be that person coming to the Lord. And yet that is something that has been seen as a basic tenet within the Catholic faith basically since its conception. And uh, it has been inaccurate through all of this. You either are required to do acts 
to find salvation, or Jesus has taken care of everything for us. You can't have it both ways. And the Catholic sacraments of initiation are a prime example of this, yes, he came for all, but unless you do this, you won't gain the next stage. Um, Christ never once says that. He doesn't say, hey, there's a, you know, there's a, a multi-step system. There's seven stages you have to go through in order to come to me. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way in reality. But the Catholic faith has been built off of that membership requirement since its beginning. There are also several um, symbols or a number of symbols that are automatically associated with bishops and they have a, a particular significance. Uh, chief among these, okay, are the following. The crozier. Okay, this is a staff that looks like a, a shepherd's crook, um, and it's used at liturgical celebrations. The mitre. Okay, this is the triangular hat worn at the liturgical celebrations, okay, and that is used by the Pope. The pectoral cross. This is the ornamental cross that's worn around the neck. Ring. Okay, this is a symbol of the bishop's mystical marriage to the church and being a spiritual father to the faithful. You have the jucchetto. Okay, this is a skull cap associated with the upper echelon of the clergy. Bishops wear purple, cardinals wear red, and the pope wears white. You have the coat of arms. A bishop may use a, a personal one as well as one to represent his diocese. So there could be more than one coat of arms. And then a motto. Usually a quote from scripture. It speaks to the bishop's vision for ministry. Now, publicly, the bishops and the cardinals do not speak out against the pope nor do they contradict his teachings. Divine leadership. Now, in addition to the bishops and cardinals, there are the priests and deacons, there are the nuns and sisters, there are the brothers and the monks. Um, and then there's the laity, okay, which would be those that are church members, or as the rest of the uh, Christian church would call them, the laypersons. Um, although they kind of define a different role, there is an assumption that they're still further initiated, further accepted in than just being a church member. But all of these make up the different levels of things, and some are ordained, some are not, some need to be, some don't need to be, uh, some are public or some are private, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, for instance, like in the nuns and the sisters, a nun lives a very ascetic life um, put away where a sister, although a nun can be called a sister, but if they're particularly a sister, they would be doing external ministries. Uh, same thing goes with the monks and the brothers. The monks are put away in an ascetic lifestyle where the brothers are more public. And again, either one can be referred to as a brother. So it's just an overlap of multiple chambers of things that happened. Now, this isn't unique to Catholicism. I know that it does occur in different levels and different ways uh, amongst other portions of 
the Christian church, and I get that, but it uh, it's also not unique when you look at it from the perspective of Judaism. However, you have to remember that these are all hierarchies that are not biblically based, except in reference to Jewish temple, okay, or in reference to mystery religions and their structures. When Christ came, he fulfilled the scriptures and he got rid of the need for the temple, for the sacrifices, for the hierarchies that takes place. All of that went away, or was supposed to go away. But once Rome captured the church, it had reinstituted all of these elements and added more in there so that you have this corporate ladder that exists within Christianity. And uh, it's been accepted and, and migrated into the Protestant churches as well in various means. And this is very important for me to, to acknowledge at this point. You have to remember, like I've said before, that the Roman Catholic Church is nothing more than a governing body that hides under the umbrella of a religion. And the Protestant Reformation was an escape from that, not from first century Christianity, but from Roman Catholicism. So when the Protestant Reformation took place, the Protestant divisions, the denominations that were created from them, that sparked from that, are mutated versions of Roman Catholicism, not elements from first-century Christianity and the direct teachings of Jesus. And that would explain why you have so much of the symbolism, the hierarchy and things that appears within the Protestant churches as well as the Catholic. So, they're all guilty to some extent of this, uh, and it's because the entire church has escaped from the lone need for Christ that first century Christians had. Now, as we step into the sacraments, uh, we're going to hit, we're hitting an area now that, uh, that is very much like modern day cult uh, organizations. And, uh, and it's dangerous. And it, it's, it, this would have to be the deepest, darkest part to me. Of Catholicism and uh, and many of the Protestant faiths as well, you have to acknowledge that the word sacrament itself is actually referring to something that's more of like a, a military oath of allegiance, and that's that's a dangerous ground to be falling into. Um, yeah, it it actually becomes some method of 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 controlling it. Now, the Catholics would say that it is a holy and visible sign. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily falls under that. Um, you know, they, they look at these different elements, like Mass. Mass is something that was first created by Justin Martyr um, it, it, around 155 A.D., something like that. So, we're not even... Um, you know, 150 years after Christ, we haven't even reached that stage. We're a little over a century past the actual ministry of Christ 
for us to, to then throw in this, oh, we're going to create mass, which means that we're going to create an organized structure in, in the way that we worship. Okay, there's going to be steps. Again, there's going to be a program of things that we do um, every time that we meet as an assembly. And again, it's rules, regulations, rituals, things of that nature that are being put into place. Um, but they would, they would, they would say that these are things that come straight from Jesus, even though Mass itself did not first happen until the 150s. But it's something that's always been there. No, it does not exist in Scripture is not there, okay? Um, but with this comes this need to perform rituals to gain the rewards, okay? By instituting the sacraments, uh, they would claim, Catholicism would claim that Christ connected us to the events in his life, okay? Um, that the people during his physical ministry experience in a sensory level. Okay, so these sacraments are intended to somehow bring us physically into the experiences that those that walked with Christ physically had. Okay, and there are seven of these. And they're in three categories. Okay, there is the sacraments of initiation. That right there sends up huge bells for anybody who's ever been involved in a cult. Um, but sacraments of initiation, those are your baptism, your confirmation, and the Eucharist are also referred to as the communion, the Holy Communion. Then you have the sacraments of healing. Okay, this is going to be your penance and reconciliation, okay, also known as confession, and the anointing of the sick, okay, which doesn't actually do anything except make them feel better, okay. Soothing ointments, things of that nature, you know, eucalyptus or whatever you're doing. It's not healing anyone. It just makes them feel more comfortable. And then there's the sacraments of service. Okay, this is going to be your holy matrimony. Okay, and your holy order. Holy matrimony, one-time event, obviously, uh, although it can reoccur. Catholicism allows for it to reoccur. And then the holy order which is ordinations, things of that nature. And again, those should occur once. You shouldn't have to go back and, and have to be reinstituted in that. Now, the, uh, the Protestants use this, and you know, ordination still exists, obviously, ordained ministers, things of that nature. And so it, it continues to happen uh, outside of the Catholic Church, but they call it the Holy Order, and it's the last or the seventh of the sacraments that, that takes place. Um, sacraments are prescribed events and according to Catholicism these are prescribed events because we know we are guaranteed that Christ is present during them according to the Catholic belief so, if a sacrament is taking place, Christ is definitely there. That's dangerous grounds. It's very dangerous grounds. But, 
it's there. It's a part of their structure. Okay, now we're going to step into the particular three categories of sacraments. This first one being the sacraments of initiation. Now, before I go any further in it, I want to make sure that I detail out the definition of the very word initiation. Okay, it literally means the action of admitting into a secret or obscure society or group, typically with a ritual. So, right off the bat, we're speaking in cult-like terminology with the very first required set of sacraments. Now, on top of that, the Catholic belief is that the sacraments connect you to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the sacraments of initiation. Okay, The Father is in the baptism, the Son is in the Eucharist, Okay, or also known as the Lord's Supper, and the Holy Spirit is in the confirmation. Now, ironically enough, the first, the baptism, and the last, the, confirm, uh, yeah, the confirmation, are things that only need to happen one time and should only happen one time. So apparently you can connect with the Father and you can connect with the Holy Spirit on a one-time basis, but the Eucharist continues to be repeated, meaning you have to reconnect with the Son on a regular basis. So it's, you can't lose baptism, you can't lose your confirmation, but apparently you can lose your connection with Christ. Now, in baptism itself, the way the Catholic Church sees it is this is the primary way to salvation. Okay, and without it, uh, you cannot gain access to any of the other blessings, to anything else. You have to get the baptism first before the rest of the sacraments can, can come to you, okay? before grace can be put on you. Uh, now, the irony in this is they look at it as Christ saved us all on the cross. So someone who never knew the Lord is already really saved. However, the Catholics also throw in that you can go back in and you can you can give them, they can find salvation even after death. You can baptize them after death. Um, this is just one of the stages that falls under necromancy. And you'll see more of that as we get deeper into the Catholic system. Now, <clears throat> apparently the only requirement in baptism, okay, is that you, you have to possess faith in God and you must be able to profess it publicly, okay, and unless you're an infant, okay, then in that case, the parents can profess their faith on your behalf. They can stand in as a substitute. Okay, so even though you have not professed your faith, they profess their faith, and so therefore you can be baptized. Now, the belief is that the confirmation end of it later on is your ability to then go in 
and do it yourself and to stand in on your own. Now, it's not baptism part two, but it is uh, it, it is your ability to go in and walk with the Lord on your own. Uh, but even if you didn't do that, see, apparently, according to the Catholic structure, is that you've already been baptized by your parents, so therefore you're good. Okay, now, there are those that would argue, no, that's not the case. It really kind of is. Okay, if you're of age and you go in and get baptized, that was by your own will. It was by your own admission, your own possession of faith in God. There you are. You're taken care of. But if it was an infant one, then you can go in and do confirmation, and that, that is your own way of committing to it. Um, and, and there are going to be those that are going to argue with me and say, well, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, really it does. Okay, and uh, you're really kind of trapped either way because if it doesn't work that way, then that means baptism alone isn't what you need. That you still have to have confirmation. So if that's the case, then why even do infant baptism in the first place? If it does, if it's not enough. Okay. Now the other concept in this would be that well, until confirmation, you're not fully in the the sacraments. Okay, so. Between infant baptism and your confirmation, you're living in this in this crux where you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have discernment, you you don't have protection from the world around you. You just have protection at the end. Okay, so you could face every evil that the world has in store for you, but not have the Holy Spirit with you until confirmation. So it's setting a child up for failure. It's setting a child up for spiritual failure, at least, to have to face the world without the Holy Spirit present. All because the Catholics say that these are required in order for you to have a relationship with God. Okay, Now, if you're a Catholic and you look at this and you're trying to figure out, well, of course, that's where we've already been raised. Here's the truth in the nutshell. Okay, The baptism that happens in Matthew, or in the other Gospels for that matter, is a baptism that is symbolic for Jesus. The Catholics have it as this baptism is extended out to the apostles. And that somehow in confirmation, you are gaining um, the tools of the Holy Spirit in the same way that the apostles were given the tools to go out and to forgive sin in the name of Christ and to perform baptism, to perform miracles and do all these things. Um, there is nothing in Scripture that says that everyone who comes to know Jesus as Christ is given the gift of being able to baptize people uh, and save them, literally save them, to perform miracles and, and so forth. That is not that is not scriptural. The apostles specifically were given instructions because they themselves were going to be building the church. But to make the claim that they then can pass that on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation is not in scripture. I do not have the power to perform miracles in Christ's name today just because the 12 disciples who became the apostles did. 
doesn't work the same way. And I certainly can't baptize my child and, and give them that power. Okay, again, it's this, this is a this is one of those big strong problems within Catholicism. It's it still brings it all back into what can man have power to do? Let's take it all down to us. Okay? And you're going to find that as we get deeper talking about the Pope, the papacy itself, this concept that uh, by representing Christ, which, again, isn't in Scripture, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, you will be me on earth, and that you will have all of my powers. Peter doesn't become a demigod. And it certainly doesn't give any scriptural reference of that being handed on generation upon generation uh, as if they are now able to literally create a holiness here on earth. It's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous ground, but that is, that is where we are, and that's what happens. Uh, and infant baptism is just another example of this error in this whole thing, uh, to which the Catholics are constantly having to say, yes, but you know, you can't really hold the infant responsible for everything that happens. But then again, unless they're confirmed, they don't have full access to all the powers, da 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 da, da. Uh, which would answer that, that question that I've always had is, okay, so an infant gets baptized, and the infant then goes grows up and becomes a serial killer. So the infant is automatically guaranteed access to heaven, because somebody poured water on his head as a child. No. They go on to live a sinful uh, existence. They haven't been saved. And the act of pouring water on them, which, by the way, cannot be made holy by man. Okay, Water itself is not holy. Okay, The living water is Christ. Not physical water. Okay, it is symbolic. You know, back in the 80s, there was an outcropping of televangelists that were going and, and mailing people packets of water that they claimed was from the Jordan and had been made holy. No, no, no. We do not have the power to make something holy. We cannot make something sacred. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that we can. Okay, the closest we get to that is baptism. And baptism is still just a symbolic means. Now, the Catholics, again, would say that baptism has to be a publicly confessed event. You have to publicly be baptized in order for it to be a sacrament that is considered official. So other human beings have to see it happen in order for you to have a relationship with God. which we know is not true. But it's, it's again, that mistake. It's that, that heresy that, uh, that the public has to see all of this. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the errors that the, uh, the temple fell into, that the Jews fell into, is this concept of being seen praying, being seen doing things. Okay, that is physical... Um, 
that is not a spiritual relationship between you and God. That is showmanship. Okay, no one else has to see, has to have physical proof of your relationship with Christ in order for you to have a relationship with Christ. And if you're in the Catholic Church and you you have been taught this, and we know that you've been taught this, that it has to be publicly done, just like confirmation has to be public and the Eucharist has to be public, and that, you know you don't do it on your own, and you've got you've got to light a candle and you've got to be seen and you've got to wear this this you've got to you've got to do things, and again the beads that are there and you're you're going through it's all physical things, it's all symbolism that is put into place in order to make you feel that you are you are doing something mainly because other people see you doing it and you cannot tell me that you have not gone into your church your local church and and have seen people come in and out of the confessional and you have not heard your fellow church members make comments well you know I saw you know sister so and so you know going to confession or you haven't had a parent that has gone on to you because you have not gone to confession. Or a priest that has not gotten a little bent out of shape because it has been a while since you've been to confession and so forth. Since you've taken the Eucharist. And, you know, all of these different things. Because, see, it's all about the physical appearance. Which takes you back to cult mentality. You have to perform rituals that have to be seen by others in order for you to continue to, uh, to attain the rewards. A true relationship with God, a true relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit is just that. It's you and God communing with each other, not you in the community communing with God. What other people see in the world is not what is essential about your relationship with God. You could be on an island somewhere and it's just you. And truthfully, according to Catholicism, unless somebody else sees you do certain things, you're not maintaining an active relationship with God. Now that sounds foolish, right? Well, it's because it is foolish. It is foolishness. But that same thing, by the way, constitutes a reality in the Protestant denominations as well. You don't have to, do not have to go to a physical church building and attend that physical church building every Sunday Wednesday nights, do your things with those. You don't have to be at these fellowships with other Christians in order for you to actually have an active relationship with the Lord. If your relationship is with the Lord in prayer and through his word, you're in the fellowship that you're supposed to be in. Now, if you meet in a small group, an assembly, which, by the way, is what the Greek word ecclesia is referring to is an assembly. It's a small group of people. And in, in today's world of COVID-19, where you're not supposed to meet in large groups, you know what? That actually benefits God. People are complaining about not being able to physically go to their church. Well, guess what? Your church is your assembly. It's not a building. It's not a structure. It's the assembly with other believers. That's the church. So if you can't meet in groups of larger than 10, amen, so be it. That's, that's, that's what you want. You want small groups of fellowship. Because that's what the assembly is. That's what the ecclesia was. 
But the Romanizing of it has told you that it has to have a physical structure. And it has to have physical routines and rituals. It is returning you to the temple days with your bishops and your hierarchy and your requirements. And it's bringing you into a need to confess your darker sins to another human being. Your penance is being held in check by a priest, not your relationship with God. It's all an error. It's all very mystic religion, and it's all very wrong. And very far removed from what Christ spoke of. And, and while I'm on the area of uh, things that are not spoken of by God as being proper, <clears throat> one of the things that is this hugely talked about in Catholicism is when you do baptism, especially infant baptism, that you are naming your child, okay, you're dedicating your child. And by the way, this happens in Protestant churches too, these, these dedications that happen with your child, the christenings and things. Um, christening is not really any different than infant baptism. Okay, a dedication of your child is not any different than an infant baptism. So if you're not Catholic, but you take part in these other things, you're really doing the same thing. You're in the same realm. And, uh, and one of the, the areas that has always bothered me is this concept that you, you really need. You don't have to, but you're, in, you're encouraged to name your child after a saint. Now, this is a whole area there, and I'm going to do a really quick glossing over about this. <clears throat> this whole sainthood issue is something that, that has bothered me uh, going way back. But you do not commune with the dead at least not and be serving Christ in doing so okay that's necromancy and this idea that the the dead the physically dead are now saints in heaven and that they are communing with us no the only spirit we commune with is the holy spirit not the spirits of the dead. Holy Spirit never died. Okay, to commune with a spirit of someone that has been physical flesh and is dead, other than the Holy Spirit, is necromancy. And the concept of being blessed in some way to have uh, your child protected by a saint especially if they're named after that saint that's astrology and star worship and again necromancy and all those things that goes on that is not scriptural and it's not Christly okay the dead are not looking down on us or speaking with us and communing with us and if you are in any form of a faith that is telling you that you should do that that first of all that you are doing it 
And second, that you should do it is evil. Plain and simple, it's evil. You don't light a candle for the dead and hope the incense goes up, okay, that the smoke travels up to the dead. You don't worship that. That is necromancy. It is occultic. It is demonic. And yes, it is a very valid portion of Catholicism. That in and of itself, if everything else that I've discussed in this were not a part of Catholicism, but that right there, that element right there, were still abiding in it, that right there should tell you there's a problem. That is a huge, huge demonic issue. And you will find nothing in Scripture that is positive for it. Now, you will find demonic worship, and you will find the worshiping of the dead in Scripture, Old Testament, and some new. You'll find it there, <laughs> but it's not coming from Christ, and it's not something that he is saying you should be doing. Okay? He doesn't tell you that, oh, that by the way, you know, you are with me now, but once you have the Holy Spirit, and once you die, you will continue to instruct those that are here. <laughs> that is not scriptural. Okay? He does not tell you that I go and reserve a place for you so that you can then set up shop and sit and wait for your family to screw up or to need you so that you can answer their prayers. That's not scriptural. Plain and simple, it's not there. It is in mystic religions. It is in occultism, and it is necromancy and astrology um, and a whole conglomeration of other things that will be discussed at another time uh, if the Spirit says that we should discuss it. There are definitely others that can cover those issues a whole lot better than I can. Uh, all I'm trying to do is cover Catholicism. And... I know that from just what I've covered up until this point, this should be enough for you to say there are highly, highly questionable areas within Catholicism. And I need to step back if I am a part of it, or I need to step back if I have been entertained by it, and, uh, and ask myself, are these things I want to partake in, and do they line up in Scripture? Now, I know that you won't find them lining up in Scripture, but if you don't, but don't take my word on it. You need to go and do your own research in it, and go and find it. And if you can find star worship as a positive, uh, if you can start, find necromancy as a positive in the scriptures and in the teachings of Christ, not in your church, but in Scripture. This is where we have a tendency to fall off. Okay, Judaism did it. Christianity does it. Uh, Catholicism does it. We have a tendency to focus on the, the commentaries around the Scripture rather than reading the Scripture itself and going, where does the Scripture say this? But we'll jump to our Matthew Henry's or to, um, to our Catholic diocese references and, uh, and say that this is where it comes from. 
according to the Holy Church. No. What does it say according to the Scripture? Okay, that is the Holy Spirit. It does not say in John 14 that uh, Uncle Louie okay, will be there for you. That Aunt Bess will be there for you. Okay, And then when you die, you'll be there for your family to answer questions and to solve things for them and to create miracles. One Holy Spirit and if you're in any kind of a situation where you are worshiping or praying to anything other than the Holy Spirit, you are in an occultic situation. You are in a cult. And bottom line, Catholicism qualifies for that under this area alone. Now, obviously, you're seeing now at the tail end of this first hour that there's there's a great deal that needs to be covered and you're probably asking yourself if you're a part of catholicism or you've always questioned about catholicism man he hasn't covered a lot of things it's true i haven't uh, and hopefully i will cover most of that in the next part of this uh, and as i said at the beginning i am not trying to be exhaustive in this and i'm most certainly not trying to turn it into some kind of a seminary and seminar series uh, with extensive details and uh, although that can be done, there are others that have gone before me that have done better jobs at the item by items. And, uh, and so I defer to them when it comes to those details. I am just trying to summarize very quickly, as I did with Judaism, and as I will continue to do as we move forward, uh, to try and give you an over, overall view of where all these structures are coming from so that we can get to that point where we can interpret today's global events and local events in the perspective of where we have been misled by those those elements that we have put our trust and faith in before so i hope this has been helpful i hope that part two will be even more helpful to you uh, pass it on to those that uh, that have interests and, uh, and we'll do occasional live as well to answer some of the specifics um, but for now, I thank you for your time, and I look forward to having deeper discussions as we move forward. God bless you always.